Welcome to The Pactum. I'm Pat Abendroth with Mike Grimes. And on today's episode, we are talking about the vital matter of typology. And we have an expert with us to do so. That's right. <laughs> but hey, before we introduce our expert, uh, we do want to say something to our Pactumverse listeners. We're so thankful for all of you. And we want to remind you to make sure and give us five stars and give us all those amazing reviews that we read and love so much here on the Pactum. Indeed, indeed. And we also want to remind our listeners about the Pactum Conference coming up in October of this year, October 6th and 7th, here in Omaha, Nebraska at Omaha Bible Church. It's going to be a great conference uh, for you to be encouraged in eschatological things, graphs, all sorts of amazing It's not your grandparents' eschatology conference. It's a little bit different. All things new. Uh, We've got Daryl Hart coming, Michael Beck, Mike Abendroth, and myself, and it's meant to encourage. So Go to thepactum.org and get signed up and registered. Awesome. Thank you. So today on The Pactum, we have a guest to talk about typology and biblical interpretation. Our guest is the preaching pastor at Cosmos Dale Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and an associate professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Resurrection Hope and the Death of Death, Hope for All the Earth, the commentary on Daniel in the ESV Expository Commentary series, The Gospel is for Christians, Behold Our Sovereign God, and Short of Glory, A Biblical and Theological Exploration of the Fall. In addition, he is the author of the book we want to discuss today, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory. Our guest is Mitch Chase. Hi, Mitch, and welcome to the Pactum. Well, I'm so glad to be with you guys. Thanks for the invite and uh, to talk about a subject I love to discuss. Awesome. I think our listeners are going to love the conversation. We've got a lot of pastors who listen, a lot of people who are not pastors who listen, but they all want to be better Bible readers. Amen. Typology is obviously important. But before we talk about biblical types, we want to get to know you a little bit better, Mitch. What type? See what I did there? Dad joke. That's good. That's That's a dad joke. We're all dads. (laughs) (laughs) What type of food do you enjoy? And give us some restaurant tips for the Louisville, Louisville area. And, you know, one of the best parts of living in Louisville is definitely the food. And, uh, you know, there's a, a favorite spot of ours called Simply Thai. They have a couple locations here in the city and uh, they have amazing Thai food. So we get their chicken pad Thai. And I mean, it is a family favorite. We love it. It doesn't sound like what you'd go to the South for. Right. So maybe it's like the South of Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I had an overnight one time in Louisville, and uh, we had a hard time finding a restaurant. And it was oh, did you? some kind of Middle Eastern place that looked awesome. Okay. Uh, they were closed on you know Saturdays or Sundays or whatever it was. And mm. So yeah. I'm going to come back and eat Thai food there because I love Thai food. Oh, then you would love this spot. That's the one to keep on the list. Simply okay. Thai. Good. And Mike Grimes won't be going there because no. he's allergic to anything seafoodish. That's true. And yeah. they use uh, what kind of there's fish sauce in uh, pad thai, huh? which I did not know. And uh Pat took me to eat pad thai and I really liked it, but <laughs> probably wasn't a great idea. <laughs> oh man. Well then stay far away, Mike. Stay far <laughs> away. <laughs> Epi pin yeah. close. Can we, settle, <laughs> can we it might be worth it? Can we settle something I'm noticing here? How is it that you say the name of your city correctly? Oh, Louisville? Oh, well. I've heard you know, Louisville, and Pat was I tried. Louisville. See, I was trying. I didn't say full-on Louisville, Louisville because I, I have culture in my life. But there, I know how to say it? I, there, there are residents in this city who say it both ways, to be quite oh. frank. I, I hear Louisville. I hear Louisville. And uh, I don't remember why I really gravitated toward one versus the other. But, yeah, you you definitely hear a few. Louisville is very much not said. So Louisville, Louisville, something like that. Now, isn't there like, like the hardcore diehard Louisville? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's evidence of a native right there in the city. Okay. Right. We were driving through one time, and uh, it wasn't your city, but it was in Kentucky. And my kids were amazed. We were at the Taco Bell, and the guy was like, I want number nine up there. <laughs> and my kids to this day laugh their heads off. When like, can you translate that? Need number nine up there. <laughs> so anyway, I'll stop. I'm offending all kinds of people at this point in time. And I didn't mean to. So, so Mitch, are you originally from that area or somewhere else? 
our family moved from from Texas actually in uh, in 2010 and came to do doctoral work at Southern Seminary. Been here in Louisville ever since. So we've been uh, in the city now. What is that? About 13 years. Yeah. Super beautiful campus there at the seminary. I've it's been, wonderfully lovely. Yeah, I rode yeah. my bike through there one time and just was amazed. Super yeah. pretty. It is beautiful spot. So let's talk about typology, but before we define it and get into what it is exactly, um, let's uh, maybe address typology from the vantage point of someone who might say, I've never heard of such a thing. Uh, can yeah. you prove to me that there's such a thing as types in the Bible with the Bible <laughs> itself, or is this just superimposed? You know, to get it in that particular question, I would I want to direct readers to Paul's letter to the Romans and how Paul actually uses the word. Okay. And uh, and so sometimes if if a interpreter is doubtful about a concept and you can actually actually show the the language in the scriptures and say, now, what does this mean? What are they doing there? Well, then you you've got a, a strong textual argument to, to get going in your favor. And Romans five uh, does that because we're we're introduced to, in uh, to an Adam. Christ contrast. And when Paul's making his argument, he calls Adam a type of the one to come. And as you actually find this word in the scriptures, it um, it's not merely a concept to be imposed upon them, though I am not opposed to uh, formulating a concept to describe what we see in the Bible anyway. Uh, it's good news, though, that the word type is in Romans 5. And so it's it's just a matter of uh, now wondering, what does that mean? What are the biblical authors doing when they call something a type? And does it implicate things other than just, say, Adam by name? Sure. Uh, so I'd, I'd want to guide a, a reader or an inquirer to to that notion and then maybe start there. Good, good. Well, we do have some recovering biblicists who listen to the Pactum. <laughs> and uh, we have a recovery group. And so I appreciate you pointing out Romans 5, 14, that we do have the actual word in there. And so thank you for pointing that out. We want to move on a little bit. And uh, in your 40 questions book, you define typology as a person, office, place, institution, event, or thing in salvation history that anticipates, shares correspondence with, escalates toward, and resolves in its antitype. Well, I think that's a great definition. It's a mouthful. Uh, it's a mindful. So if you could maybe hmm. walk us through that definition a little bit and uh, help us to understand exactly what typology is, that would be wonderful. De definitions are really key, aren't they? So coming to this topic, um, standard definitions of typology often focus on a, a person, event, or institution that anticipates the antitype. And I thought, well, I don't want to go with a short definition. I'm just going to give a mouthful. <laughs> and so, now, um, you do have a short definition also, but uh, <laughs> I wanted to go through the whopper. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's really a, a definition as you read it, that it is, it is lengthy, but every phrase is important to me because of, of what it nuances on this topic. Um, so if we, if we look at the list of what a type can be, um, a person, an office, a place, institution, event, or a thing. So there's a, a series of things then that um, a type could encompass. We mentioned Adam from Romans 5, so that'd be an example of a person. An office might be an example of the office of the priesthood or an office of, let's say, a judge in the book of Judges or a king in the monarchy of Israel. An institution might be something like the temple or the sacrificial system. So there's these various terms are trying to um, get at as categories for what the types of scripture fit in. All right. So that's my my effort at trying to name as many of those labels. Now, what are they? Where are they located? Well, these are people, offices, places, institutions, events, or things in salvation history. That means these are historical. These are not, you know, fictional things that we're imposing into the scripture. This is the biblical record of historical things and people and events and all the rest. And by God's design, they anticipate something. So we're, we're trying to look at how Old Testament realities, like these people or events or offices, have a role to play. And the role that they're playing is that they are forward-looking. They are anticipating something. And not only do I use the language anticipates, they share correspondences with and escalate toward 
the antitype. Now, an antitype, just by the very spelling of it, it sounds like you're against typology. I'm anti-type, but that's not what this word means. Antitype with the prefix anti simply means to be um, opposite from in salvation history. So it doesn't have to mean opposed to, but if we've got Old Testament realities on one end, then on the opposite end or the antitype area, we've got the fulfillment. So that's all we mean by antitype. We're not opposed to it. We're trying to get on the other end of redemptive history to say, what was it all anticipating? What was right. it all escalating toward? So we could we could um, even say we could substitute shadows and substance also, right? I think that's absolutely right. Shadows, types, patterns. These are the the things that my definition is trying to encapsulate there. And um Therefore, something that God has designed those things for will be uh, the fulfillment later in redemptive history. A reader is then wanting to be attentive to how earlier patterns and figures and shadows are eclipsed by the greater work of new covenant realities, like the person and work of Christ and his church and the new creation. Uh, so that's the that's the relationship. It's a redemptive historical one. Um, and uh, it is possible because of the Lord's superintending the events of history to guide them in a providential way that truly shapes history in a manner that points to Christ. So Jesus is the ultimate temple, right? That that would help us to understand a uh, place. I think uh, that's right. Ultimate yeah. temple, ultimate priest, Good. true and greater Moses, better David, a new Adam. All of these, uh, this kind of language of escalation or greater than, better than, a true. Those, those uh, little words are trying to get at the antitype role. Yes. And uh, so we think about think about those things. That's right. Greater so, temple. Yeah. yeah. Jesus came and, and tabernacled among us, right? Using that kind of image yes. in John chapter 1. It, that's right. In John 1, 14, when he's tabernacling, here you have a biblical author employing that old institution, isn't he? And applying it to Christ's action. What can we say the word did? Well, the word tabernacled and Israel knows what it is to have something tabernacling in their midst. They've got a whole history of that reality. And uh, so the biblical authors are trying to connect the dawning of redemptive work in Christ to these shadows and times of patterns and types to see that coherence in the big redemptive story. So it's it, it's sounding an awful lot like this is really important, to, right? This is this is vital to understanding scripture. Would you say I, it? I would use the word vital, and the, and the reason I want to use the word vital is the New Testament doesn't come to us in a vacuum. The New Testament, you know, as my friend Richard Barcellus likes to say, the New we, Testament. We, 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 don't, we don't like Rich. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't even mention his name on the package. That's right, and I know you're teasing, but it's funny. We we love to give him grief about things too. Um, it, it, he loves to say, Rich loves to say that uh, essentially the New Testament is the continuation of the Old Testament story. And what I love about that is it helps us realize opening Matthew 1.1, there's a whole lot that's happened prior to that. And in order to understand what the New Testament authors are doing, what their agenda is for us as readers, we have to have a sense of the Old Testament patterns and prophetic designs that have preceded it. And that means typology is going to be really important. Okay. You know, I, in all seriousness, I, I like the fact that Rich says, uh, not only should we read the old in light of the new, but we should read the, no, excuse me. Yeah. Not only should we, cause I like to say we should read the old in light of the new. And he mm -hmm. comes back and says, well, that's true. Yes. But we should also make sure we read the new in light of the old, which is what you're getting. Mm, that's good, isn't it? I love that. So even though he's vertically challenged, we like Richard. <laughs> you know, and he was very kind to endorse the book as well. He and I have still never met in person. We've just corresponded and chatted from time to time. And um, I, I look forward to uh, being able to share some time with him at some point. We can, he's a neat guy. Super kind and generous. Yeah. So we shouldn't talk about him too much, though. He he would want that. <laughs> right. So, so Mitch, do you do you think uh, that the Bible should be interpreted like other books, and why or why not should it be? Uh, that's that's a really key kind of question because it's a hermeneutical posture we're talking about now, right? How do we approach this book? And uh, the whole typological enterprise isn't something we would even do if the Bible was like any other book. Because what we're trying to acknowledge with a typological reading of things is that the presuppositions behind it involve things like the unity of Scripture across the Testaments, this coherence of progressive revelation from Genesis to Revelation. It's been written over many centuries by all these different dozens and dozens of authors. 
Well, there's not another book like that. Um, the, the, the way we approach the Bible then is going to be different because of the kind of book we're dealing with. It's what actually grounds the whole reading strategy of typology. If this was just merely human authored texts that didn't have a kind of built in inner biblical connection from start to finish, um, we would just say, look, you're reading things in to what these times and authors you know, what they were saying and doing, you're, you have groundless, you know, uh, uh, interpretations that you're offering. We think differently as Christians about this. We are, we argue that in light of how the great tradition has approached the scriptures, the scriptures should be read in a Christian manner as a book of God. The Lord has inspired his human authors. Absolutely. But he has ensured by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the accuracy, coherence, and preservation of his revelation. And that chiefly undergirds what we are meaning to do when we interpret something typologically. We're trying to read the Bible in light of what God has designed his historical record to point toward, and namely to make much of his son, to magnify Christ is the key to the Holy Scriptures. So we're not trying to impose something upon a bunch of human authors. We're trying to be guided by how the Bible itself is unfolding before us as a redemptive epic. So, Mitch, it seems like um, maybe in more recent days, we put so much emphasis on the human author, and we do acknowledge human authorship, and we've downplayed the divine author, mm. and it causes us to not like things like typology. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Address that? Yeah, I, th- I think that, especially post-Enlightenment, there was some trending for quite a long time that would minimize the supernatural realities of the scripture. And... Um, and just to kind of filter those things out. And what you get left with is this, you know, supposed unbiased neutral stance toward the scriptures, right? We're going to approach the Bible objectively. Now, we have enough hindsight in history to realize you can't actually do that. You're always approaching the scriptures through some sort of lens, through some kind of posture. And the question is, are you reading the Bible as a Christian would read the Bible? And, um, you know, the higher critical movements that not only downplayed the role of the supernatural um, and divine authorship, it also had implications on things like typological readings of scripture, which had been so rooted in the great tradition of church history. Because if human authorship is elevated above all, and you just have this assembling together, this hodgepodge of, of human authored texts, then, um, then you really have excluded the venture of typological reading. You, you don't have the metaphysical grounds for it. And you, you don't have the uh, redemptive epic as a whole in your mind for how the Bible even works as a single book, a book or a library of books. Um, so yeah, I do think. I do think the um, minimizing of divine authorship and the elevation of human authorship, that sort of imbalance, had some serious hermeneutical implications. Uh, we've not fully shaken ourselves of those implications in the academy even. Uh, there are some you know, really bad commentaries and books and monographs that have been written to try to say things about the Bible that are simply approaching the Bible as if it's just any other book and, and writing things about the scriptures that are not from a Christian standpoint. So it's, it's unfortunate, but it's true. So Packham listeners, hopefully you're catching on to what Mitch is getting at. Uh, as far as you could go to a very conservative Bible college or a conservative seminary or read books that are written by, you know, people who really believe the Bible's true. They believe in the resurrection. And yet if they've bought into a, an, an approach to interpreting the Bible that doesn't emphasize the one divine author, hmm. uh, they they may sh- uh, shy away from things like typology. And so I, I think we're enjoying a, a recovery of such things in these days. Don't you, Mitch? I think that's right. It's a wonderful time to be a student of the Bible. We are surrounded by such a, a treasure of resources and software that really can open up the text in such rich ways. It's a It's a great spoil of riches that we have. We're getting back to reading the Bible like we're Christians, like the whole Bible is a Christian book. It's an amazing thing. So I think we're already kind of getting there, but let's let's talk about allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture um, and why that's so important and how that would relate to one divine author. Uh, Because I have friends, I have theological, uh, I don't know if if they're frenemies or what, but um, some 
I get some pushback. We get some pushback on the pactum because we want to allow scripture to interpret scripture uh, instead of uh, in, in isolation. So why would we insist on saying scripture interprets scripture? Uh, why is that so important as it would relate to typology or just yeah. Christian theology? I would want to root that hermeneutical principle in the doctrine of God. So what is true of God? God does not contradict himself. And if he says something to the Old Testament authors and he says something to the New Testament authors, we want to pay attention to progressive revelation, to covenantal uh, movements and the big epic of the redemptive story. But in the end, the Lord is not saying A and not A. He's not a God of contradiction. And um, I heard a, you know, a professor say one time, this is, you know, I'll leave the the university unnamed, but I heard a, a professor say what the author of Hebrews believes about the security of the believer is different from what the apostle Paul believes about the security of the believer. Wow. You know, now Hebrews has some challenging texts, like in Hebrews six, they're notoriously difficult and disputed among interpreters. Okay. But what your question gets to Pat is, but we also have plenty of other scriptures that can also guide and help us interpret more difficult texts. And and what we don't want to end up saying is, well, here are these new covenant writers and apostles in the in the New Testament canon, and one of them believes one thing and another one believes another thing. That is theologically disastrous. That is disastrous. Uh, so, yeah. Huh. That's contrary to the way Christians have read the Bible always, like up until yesterday. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And we need that kind of historical perspective to to get a sense of how the cloud of witnesses have approached the scriptures over the years. And that's not a kind of reading that coheres with the great tradition to pit the writer of Hebrews against Paul and the way that they viewed the security of the believer. Um, we don't want to do things like that. So it's rooted in a doctrine of God. What is God like and how how is it that God being full of, of power and uh, and to execute his perfect will? preserves his writings for his creatures to study that if God wills to speak to his creatures, he's not unable to speak clearly and to preserve his revelation for the generations to come. I think we should assume instead that he has spoken to reveal to us everything we need for faith and practice and that the scripture is sufficient for the matters it addresses. And therefore, in studying it, we can trust that the one and living God who who is not contradictory in his nature um, can establish in can uh, support and therefore establish a principle of interpretation that scripture can help us interpret other scripture. And you also asked about how that related to typology. I realized I didn't mention anything about that, Pat. But he, but with with scripture interpreting scripture, the later biblical authors are reading earlier biblical texts. They are very influenced by the earlier scriptures, especially the Pentateuch. And if the Pentateuch is influencing the, the writers of scripture from Joshua forward and even into the New Testament, then, um, then it's gonna be interesting as an exercise as interpreters for us to read how the book of Joshua treats the Torah or how the book of Matthew reads the prophets or how the book of Revelation incorporates so much of the Old Testament. That kind of interconnection of scripture interpreting scripture um, is a, is a major hermeneutical tenet for us as Christian interpreters. So I appreciate the fact that you pointed out that this is rooted in the, in the doctrine of God. And one thing we also like to talk about on the pactum is the pactum. So <laughs> That's not, right. not only does God not contradict himself, he has a decree and uh, before the foundation of the world, and it's going to center upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know that history is going somewhere. Uh, Pre-Genesis 1-1, it's all headed toward Christ ultimately. And so we would want to read the Bible uh, knowing this, not ignoring this reality, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So let's say that, let's just put it out that typological reading is rooted in the pactum. We love to hear that. You love to hear from (laughs) Dr. Mitchell Chase. Oh, so let's talk about biblical theology, maybe as it relates to the pactum and as it relates to the unfolding drama of redemption and as it would relate to typology. Would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, when I think about biblical theology, we want to have um, 
some sort of working concept, because I don't just mean theology derived from the Bible, though that is how we want to engage in theological construction. Um, we uh, are in dialogue with other authorities that are not our ultimate authority, like church tradition and creeds, and we, we're, we're thinking theologically. Uh, ultimately, though, we want to build from the scriptures, trying to follow the moves of the biblical authors across the canon, which means we're concerned with the big picture of scripture to understand the parts in light of the whole, to look at a passage and wonder where it fits. Um, biblical theology is interested in those kinds of things. Biblical theology is trying to study something in the light of what is greater, what's preceded it, what follows it, the covenantal stream it's a part of, what revelation up to that point has been accomplished. Um, biblical theology doesn't want to just understand something like, let's say, Genesis 22 with uh, Abraham's uh, offering up of Isaac. Uh, we're not saying, well, in order to understand Genesis 22, I, I just need to look at that chapter. Because if I start going elsewhere, you know, I'm going to start reading things into Genesis. Biblical theology says the best way to understand Genesis 22 is not only to look at that chapter, but to actually look at what happens afterward. And in light of the whole New Testament revelation and the covenant with Christ, those things are not irrelevant to Genesis 22. So biblical theology tries to read attentively these smaller passages in light of the redemptive trajectory of scripture. And so, you know, it's a lot to think through as interpreters, but we realize, well, this is actually quite important to our growth and maturation in biblical understanding uh, because biblical illiteracy is such a problem. Being able to think theologically, such a goal of discipleship. That means biblical theology is going to be our friend. And um, and even though the, the scriptures are this vast library of books and revelation, um, we spend our whole lives being able to study the word of God with a wealth and treasure of resources. So not only is it worth our time, I think indeed the way it fills our souls and directs us in wisdom and and leaves us in awe at the scriptures. Um, I, I love that that particular effect. So with typology, what, what typological reading is trying to do is, um, is say how these earlier offices or characters are intended by God to point forward to the person and work of Christ and his church in the new covenant. And that means um, the New Testament authors are going to be reading the Old Testament as a promise fulfillment paradigm or a pattern fulfillment or a shadow and light paradigm. They're, they're going to be, or tension, they're going to feel that. When you read Matthew, uh, well, not just Matthew, but all the Gospels, they are drawing upon the Old Testament to try to explain to us what Jesus is doing. And when we hear him talk about the kingdom of heaven, or when we see uh, Christ going to the Jordan River of all places for baptism, or if he goes out of Egypt and Matthew says, out of Egypt, I called my son. You know, this was to fulfill Hosea 11. All, all of these small examples that I get, gave you from the opening chapters of Matthew just now are helping us to see how ingrained in the minds of the old in, of the New Testament authors, the Old Testament is. So they're doing biblical theology. That's what they're doing. They're doing biblical theology because they're reading what came beforehand in light of the dawning of Christ's person and work. And it's all possible because of the one divine author moving history yeah. forward. It's all intentional. It's all on purpose. Um, it's not by accident. It's not because of Mitch's creativity uh, or anything like that. It's actually built in and on purpose and legitimate, right? That's right. And we want to look at these New Testament author conclusions and see they're rightly reading the Old Testament. If they're being inspired by the Lord, as we confess that they were, then then what they're making, their hermeneutical moves are sound, legitimate, and and I would suggest moves that we should study carefully to imitate. My uh, One of my mentors at, at Southern Seminary uh, for many years has been Jim Hamilton. He was my doctoral supervisor. And in the PhD program, and I've learned so much about interpreting the Old Testament from him. And he loves to describe biblical theology as adopting or embracing the new, the uh, interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. And we should embrace them because the interpretive understanding of the authors, their worldview of the, of the biblical uh, storyline 
is correct. We don't have to fear that, you know, what if Matthew and John were just reading too much into stuff in the prophets or the Psalms? Or what if Peter preached, you know, a mixed message to those folks in Jerusalem when he was quoting from Psalm 16? He got some things right, but he overstated other stuff. We know that we are fallible in the ways we can conclude things sometimes, but the apostles are not like that. And um, and so when uh, when we study how the New Testament uses the old, we're studying an inspired hermeneutic. There's actually something tremendously comforting about that so, because we're looking at a sound, uh, a soundly and, and legitimately uh, performed uh, set of hermeneutical moves. And we can study the right understanding of the Old Testament because we have the new. That's tremendous. So, Mitch, you've convinced me, and uh, I've prayed the prayer, and I've asked that hermeneutic into my heart. But <laughs> so, I, I've heard it said, and I've heard the objection uh, that we're not apostles. So they can yeah. do it, but we're not supposed to do it. Uh, put your professor pastor hat on and and help people think through that objection a little bit, if you would. Well, you know, that used to be my objection. I totally resonate with that. I, I, I get the hesitation there. I, I think... I think what we must process in our minds is we will adopt some hermeneutical method. In other words, we will be imitating something in order to read the scriptures. We don't come to it and say, well, I'm coming at it like a clean slate and I'm just going to No, we we are all influenced. We have people who have shaped us ways and concepts and uh, and understandings that have that have internalized over time. And that affect us even on levels we might not even be conscious of totally. So we are engaged in imitation. Uh, so when we read the scriptures, the question needs to be, what are the hermeneutical assumptions or method of reading that I'm imitating? Where is it rooted? Uh, so I get that we're not apostles and we're not trying to pretend otherwise. Right. We are trying to say that in the New Testament's use of the old, their readings are correct and spirit inspired. And if that was the way to read the new, the old Testament, then in studying their moves, we would be more faithful readers of the old Testament. If we sought to read it like they did. Now, where did they get this hermeneutic? Well, they didn't make it up either. If you think about what Jesus does between his resurrection and his ascension, he's meeting with these disciples. He's appearing to dozens and hundreds at some points. And during these intervening weeks, he's teaching, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, and he's teaching them about the Old Testament and how it testifies to him. Then you shift to the book of Acts, and Peter is preaching from Acts 2, and he's preaching from Psalm 16, and he says, this is about Jesus. Or or he's referencing Psalm chapter 2 with the anointed one, and this is about Jesus. Or the writer of Hebrews is um, you know, writing so much about Psalm 110 and Christ after the pattern of Melchizedek. This is about Christ in Psalm 110. What, where are they getting these impulses in the New Testament era to read the Old Testament this way? And I think the answer must be the Lord Jesus has opened their understanding to see how the Old Testament bears witness of him. And they are now imitating that. They are, they are working that out in their sermons and in their writings. Now we're not. Among the 12 disciples, we're not inspired apostles and, and scripture writers. Fair enough. But we have an inspired record of interpretation of the old filled with typological readings and, and figurative explanations. And as we study those things, um, I think the, the Lord is pleased by his Holy Spirit to open our understanding and to give us insight into his word. We're seeking to be faithful readers. Um, so I, I want any reluctant interpreters to just process those kinds of things and to be patient and to know that it's an understandable reluctance to say, well, I'm not an apostle. I don't want to read it this way. But um, but if we give ourselves a minute and consider the perspective of church history, that's not enough of a reluctance that should hold fast for long. It can really dissipate with some other comforting um, notions that we can remind ourselves of. And I think maybe if we just stop and think about what we're saying, would I rather, you know, imitate the apostles or would I rather imitate, you know, professor so-and-so, um, right. XYZ seminary. Well, I, I esteem certain seminary professors, but I think I'm going to go with the apostles. If I really stop and think about it. That's so true, Pat, because once the enlightenment had done, uh, some work that bore some fruit in the higher critical studies in the 1800s and some of the German scholarship that, 
um, resulted in different monographs and uh, academic uh, papers and commentaries that really were not approaching uh, with higher critical assumptions here, the scriptures with Christian assumptions. That, um, that in of itself was imitated by many interpreters who look at that kind of set of assumptions or exegesis and say, well, then I'm going to read the Bible this way. And if you, you know, say to them, well, we should read the Bible like the apostles. And they say, well, I'm not an apostle. I can't imitate them. Well, so they're imitating people who then were not inspired apostles. In other words, people who are approaching the scriptures without Christian assumptions, are they are they the paradigm to be inter- to be imitated? It seems that by the example of some exegetes, yes, that's what they believe. And I would say, no, 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 think about what we're doing. Just stand back for a second and realize we're all imitating some kind of interpretive grid. What is the interpretive grid that in the light of church history most soundly and faithfully treats the Bible as a Christian book? And uh, And I think that that will already be pointing us in a better direction. Excellent. Mitch, you mentioned Hosea 11.1 when you were giving some highlights from Matthew's gospel account. Yeah. Uh, if, we could, if we could focus on that a little bit, because I think it's an excellent example uh, that is pretty easy to grasp for Bible interpreters, mm. to see this ourselves. I think it's a little controversial as well, but if you want to spend some time talking about Hosea 11.1 uh, and as it would relate to Jesus and typology, I think our listeners would really benefit from that if you do that. This is an important example. When you hear people talk about the New Testament use of the old, this is like on their top five uh, verses to illustrate the point with, because Matthew makes a statement in Matthew chapter two um, that out of Egypt, I called my son, Matthew 2.15. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And when you look at the context of what's going on in Matthew two, the Magi have come to Herod the Great. They are uh, going to worship the Christ child. The scribes tell him Bethlehem will be the place. So they're they're ready to go there. But Herod wants, of course, the Christ child to be killed. And um, the Lord Jesus is going to go to Egypt for safety. His uh, uh, mother and Joseph are going to take him there. This means the Lord Jesus is going to come out of Egypt. He's going to come out of Egypt. Now, of course, he wasn't born there. He's born in Bethlehem. But you have this trek from the promised land to Egypt. This is important to Matthew because Matthew is reading the Christ story in ways that connect to the life of Israel in the Old Testament. Just like Israel is going to go up to a mountain and receive the law of Moses, Jesus in Matthew 5 is going to ascend a mountain like Moses and proclaim authoritative teachings, you know, not saying thus says the Lord, but I say unto you as if his very words are the words of God. Jesus is going to go through the waters after being in the wilderness uh, in Matthew 3 and 4. This uh, this uh, association with Israel's history is obvious for readers of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Israel, are they're the people associated with mountain experiences with God. They've gone through the wilderness and through the waters. Um, they faced temptation in the wilderness and failed while the Lord Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and is faithful. That means Matthew is telling the Christ story in a way that has resonances from Israel's history. We have to make those connections in our minds so that we notice how he's doing this. And he quotes from Hosea 11. When you read Hosea 11, Hosea is reflecting on Israel's history. So Hosea is a much later prophet. Uh, I think he was uh, ministering in the 800s, if I remember right, give or take a century. And um, he uh, is ministering to the Northern Kingdom And there's been a fracture of the land and there's much distress. And Israel has a a history where God had brought them out of Egypt and delivered them out of captivity. And Hosea, many centuries later, is living in a difficult time where the Israelites are going to head into captivity. Um, So Hosea in in chapter 11 in verse 1 is talking about Israel as God's son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That's one way we can say what God did in Exodus. He called out his son his corporate son. All of that in the background, Matthew just makes this statement that when the Christ child is going to depart to Egypt and remain there until the death of Herod, he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. And you think, wait a second. So I go back to Hosea 11 
Uh, I don't what? see anything in Hosea 11 that looks like a messianic prophecy. Like there's no statement about the son of David. There's no, like there's Israel's exodus out of Egypt. What's going on there? But the Bible doesn't just work with language of fulfillment according to a direct messianic prophecy, like a birth in Bethlehem or the house of David. Sometimes patterns find fulfillment, not just a direct messianic prophecy. A pattern of captivity or time in Egypt, followed by an exodus, a deliverance, someone that's called the son, like Israel is. Matthew sees a pattern at work. I think Matthew 2 is an example in verse 15 of a typological reading of the Old Testament. So we have I we do have not so in my in my okay. reading of it, and I and I know it's a controversial passage, so not every Christian interpreter is going to read it exactly the way I'm proposing but but i'm most comfortable thinking that matthew knows how jesus is the true and greater israel and that the story of israel resonates in the ministry and life of jesus and here's jesus associated with egypt and matthew knows this fulfills promises that are rooted in patterns so patterns over time become a kind of promise, don't they? Because a pattern is something that's noticeable. Things are correspondences that connect and you think, and you think, well, not only is this a, an event in this figure's life or this nation's life, I've seen it before in some way. Because you think about earlier than the book of uh, Hosea, which references Exodus, you have Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham goes to Egypt and where Abraham's bride is taken into captivity and where God pours plagues on the house of Pharaoh and then brings Israel, uh, Abraham and his bride out with great possessions. So when you read the story of Exodus, the attentive reader in the Torah should think, I've seen something like this before. It sounds like Genesis. It's just on a much more national level with Exodus. In other words, there's a pattern. So that's the point. The point is a development of patterns and um, Matthew's reading the Old Testament typologically. Uh, so that's those are some. Uh, that's a long answer, I know, Pat. But that's that's at least a way of trying to unpack what's going on with Matthew's use of Hosea and a way to get at it with Israel's history in the background of Christ's ministry. And Mitch, in your book, you say once you see this, you can't unsee it, and uh, <laughs> yeah. that that resonates with us. We say <laughs> on the on the pactum, yeah. and uh, it's so true. <laughs> Once you see it, I, I was just in, I think it's in Exodus four where, where Israel's called God's son. That's right. That's right. Seeing it all over the place. And you think, oh, uh, this is, this is all on purpose. This is by divine design and it's wonderful, but it it's a bit ruinous. It, it, it ruins, it ruins your theology sometimes if your theology doesn't, doesn't match up with this. Um, and I think it's a glorious kind of ruin. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think it gives the impression that the New Testament authors really expect us to be good readers of the Old Testament. Because can we benefit from, you know, the Gospel of Matthew without already noticing the particular typological links? Well, the answer is yes. You don't have to have this sort of understanding of typological connections to get some main points and benefit and be edified by Matthew chapter two. But once we begin to see what is going on also in Matthew's reading of Hosea and Hosea's take on Exodus, we see a multi-level use of scripture where Matthew's using Hosea, Hosea's drawing upon Exodus. The Exodus was already a pattern shown in a micro way with Abraham's life. There's a lot of interconnection. When you begin to see that, it's thrilling. And you realize how how deep the scriptures are that for our whole lives, we could commit ourselves uh, to understanding the various um, connections and allusions within the scriptures. And we would never be bored and we would never come to the end of it. There's a there's a designed inexhaustibility from a human perspective that's good to acknowledge. Um, and, and I think that's what makes our growth in Bible study so exciting. And I think it's what makes typological reading so intriguing to listeners because people can study the gospel of Matthew for decades and never think about Matthew's use of Hosea and Hosea's use of Exodus. But after decades of reading the Bible, once you can show them what Matthew's doing and talk to them about the typological reading of those patterns, 
it's like they're reading the Bible in a fresh way after so many years of studying it. It's not because they didn't study the Bible faithfully. They now begin to see what's always been there. Yes. And and it's a uh, it's renewing and, and spirit strengthening in a great way. So I love that. That's part of the fun of being involved in uh, the formation and education of uh, Bible readers. Very good, very good. So in I think the the strength of the Forty Questions book uh, would be its clarity, its simplicity. It really was striking. Even even question number one, the opening chapter, uh, what story is the Bible telling? I think it's worth the mm-hmm. price of the book. Yeah. So our listeners should check it out. Even if you just buy the book for question one, sure. <laughs> the way you lay out and give the overview of the whole Old Testament and the whole mm-hmm. New Testament, it's clear, it's simple. Uh, you know, the, the men that I had reading the book uh, in class, they were all thrilled about it. They all wanted to make sure they, you know, made a photocopy of it so they never forgot kind of thing, even though that's a copyright violation. <laughs> anyway, so all of this to say, um, well done on the clarity and simplicity, even though it's not a simpleton kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious to know... What kind of old school marm taught you how to do this? Who influenced you on how to be clear? <laughs> I, I am glad the book comes across that way. I, these are these are deeper hermeneutical waters, and to make them clear is definitely a challenge. I, if that has been accomplished, then I think something to credit that to is probably years in pastoral ministry of thinking through how to explain biblical texts in a corporate worship gathering in ways that are just going to be accessible to the minds of our listeners. Because being in pastoral ministry, you know, I'm in the Bible each week in the Old and New Testaments and just thinking through how to present the truth of God's word uh, in an expository fashion for our people. And in doing it this way, um, you do develop a rhythm, I suppose, or, or an inclination toward ways of writing and talking and thinking that would be clearer and then ways you could muddy the waters with certain phrasing and terms that are to be avoided. And um, that's not always easy in academic writing because in academic writing, sometimes over the over the years, a more muddled and complicated way of writing has been the reputation of the academy. Right. And um, and I, I, I risk overstatement and even putting it that way, I know, because not every academic book is that way, for sure. But um, but when we can work at and it just takes work when we work at and edit down and try to really make things clearer rather than complicated, choosing a simpler word rather than a complicated word. Um, we're just trying to serve our readers in the long term to help people grow. If we if we didn't aim at that and we just said, here's this really high bar, this really cerebral topic. Here's this, you know, good luck. You think, well, they might they might desire to reach that bar if you if you sort of raised it along the way with them. Like if you if you tried to walk with them rather than just taking them up and being like, here you go. Never heard the word typology before. Here's a 300 page book that, you know. The, the language of it, whatever. We don't want it to be over our heads. We want it to be challenging. So over our heads in that sense, but we want it to stretch us in a way that's not going to leave us gasping for air. <laughs> we want to read a book and grow theologically and patiently. I've also found guys, and I know that you probably resonate with this too. Um, when I'm trying to grow in a topic over the years, sometimes my initial exposure to it, I don't have a good grasp on it. And it's just going to take some returning to it in the years ahead, uh, revisiting an earlier book on theology or some earlier doctrinal topic. And you realize, you know, back when I was exposed to this, I needed that exposure, but I didn't get everything the first time. And um, and I think when we realize we work this way so often, um, we're human. We should expect that kind of gradual um, spiraling growth. So I, so I hope even if people check out the book on typology and allegory and think, okay, I made it through that, but I'm, I didn't get everything out of it that I wish I grabbed. Okay. So now we're introduced to the topic and having gone through it once, what if you set it aside and the next year revisited it? That kind of, that kind of thing builds because the categories of understanding are increasing. So be, we need to be patient with ourselves as readers and realize it is a vital topic to grow in. But listen, you know, Lord willing, we've got a lot of months and years of studying and growing and reading to do. So I, I hope that people will check it out. That's great advice. Mitch, why don't you tell us a little bit about your newest book, uh, Short of Glory, A Biblical and Theological Exploration of the Fall? I appreciate you asking that, Mike. I I wrote this book for Crossway um, that came out in May of 2023. 
And uh, short of glory is borrowing Paul's language in Romans 3. I'm plagiarizing just a bit. And um, I love I love that phrase uh, for the title because I'm trying to argue that God has created us to reflect and behold his glory, that as his image bearers, we fall short of this because of our sin. And so we are short of glory right now in a Genesis 3 world. Genesis 3 is the reason for this. It's the entrance of sin and death into the world with the rebellion of God's image bearers. And what I felt would be a fruitful book topic is to basically meditate on Genesis 3, to walk the reader over 13 chapters of in the book through Genesis 3 with an eye toward all the other biblical theological connections in the scripture that I could pull together. And um, and so what I'm trying to do is situate the event of the fall in the Bible storyline and just reflect on it deeply. Um, but I, what I try to say to people is this book is not a downer. You might think, well, it's a book on the fall. My goodness, give me something uplifting. But um, but what I'm trying to do in the book is is to show how the bad news of our rebellion is the background for the radical, incredible brightness of grace and redeeming, rescuing uh, work of Christ that we can rejoice in. And that once we understand, you know, our grave condition and the human dilemma, um, the person and work of Christ shine all the more compellingly for us. So I've tried to fill the book uh, with gospel hope to encourage the readers. But along the way, to think through one of the most pivotal chapters in scripture. It's hard to overstate how pivotal Genesis 3 is for the entire storyline of the scriptures. So that was a fun book to write. Thanks for asking about it. Uh, Short of glory. I hope people will check it out. So Mitch, it's been great having you on the Pactum today. We're grateful for your willingness to do this. I think it'll benefit a lot of people. So thank you very much. It has Uh, been my pleasure. I appreciate the time, guys. My final question for you is, uh, I was trying to find you on Instagram yesterday, and uh, are you, are you on Instagram <laughs> who's a cat rescuer and one of our <laughs> top five trainers? Like you're the Chase? That, is, that is a different one. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, that is not my pseudonym or, uh, or doppelganger or whatever the right word would be. Yeah, I'm not on Instagram, but it looks like a Mitchell Chase is on Instagram, just not this one. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it. Oh, you can keep up with Mitch if you'd like to on social media. He is on Twitter at Mitchell at Mitchell Chase. Uh, you can also find him on Substack, MitchChase.substack.com, or you can go to the church website, CosmosDaleBaptistChurch.org. I want to thank you for being a part of the Pactumverse and listening to today's episode. As always, you can find us online on Instagram and Twitter, thepactum.org. Make sure to go there and get signed up for the conference coming up in October. We'll see you next time on The Pactum.